This is a Courageous Church podcast, equipping and empowering you to live a courageous life. Join us now as we listen to a message from Courageous Church in Salt Lake City, Utah. We've been in this series called Miracle Maker, and today I want to look at Jesus' very first miracle as an invitation to us to experience the new life that God has for us in Christ Jesus. And then as we did last week, we're going to take some time to respond with worship. If you have your Bibles, go with me today to John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. Beginning in verse 1, it says this, On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants in verse 5, Do whatever he tells you. Now, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants in verse 7, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called to the bridegroom, and he said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee. And there he manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Now to set this up a little bit, Jesus, his mother, and his disciples have all been invited to this wedding at Cana in Galilee. What we know about Jewish weddings is that they tend to last a long time, And running out of wine is never a good thing. Culturally, it was expected that there would be enough wine for everybody and that it would last. The problem here is that it did not. And so Mary, Jesus' mother, comes to Jesus and tells him what has happened. Now, at first glance, it seems that Jesus is uninterested because of his response to her. He says, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. But Mary knows who Jesus is and places a demand on him. As I mentioned last week, Jesus often responds to demands that are made of him. And I'll say this right at the outset today. God often responds to the demands of faith. And here's what I want to say about faith demands. We are often and wrongly taught that demands in general are a negative thing. We see people that are demanding as being troublesome. And we're often taught that we shouldn't be a bother, that we shouldn't be too demanding. So naturally, why would we or should we even bother God with our demands? Clearly, he has more important things to do, right? Clearly, he has bigger fish to fry. Am I wrong? And unfortunately, when this happens, we buy into a false narrative about who God is and what he delights himself in. And here's the truth. The truth is this. God delights himself in the demands of faith. Just consider Abraham. Abraham was a man who argued with God. He wrestled with him over outcomes. He placed demands on him. But in the end, he was considered righteous because of his faith. It was reckoned unto him that he was made justified and righteous because of the way that he believed. He believed God would do what God said he would do. And we see this play out all throughout the scriptures. God is attracted to and even glorified in and through the faith-filled demands that people place on him. Later, we see this play out with the centurion captain. Here's a man who is in charge of a hundred Roman soldiers, and he places a faith demand on Jesus. He comes to Jesus and he tells him that his servant had become paralyzed. Jesus, ready to go and heal the man, is told by this Gentile that his word is enough. So get this, Jesus is ready to go heal this servant, 
And the man stops him and says, no, just say the words and it'll be done. Jesus, the miracle maker, he marvels at this man's faith. And this is one of the only places in the scriptures, there's actually two, where it says that Jesus marveled. He marvels at the lack of people's belief. And here he marvels at the amount and size of this man's faith. And he says to his disciples, nowhere in all of Israel have I seen such faith. And so, as I mentioned last week, I want us to be a courageous people, a people that are not afraid to place faith-filled demands on God, to be people that are not afraid to be bold and to be audacious with our prayers and to believe God at his word. Why? Because God wants us to be real, not religious. That's our first key point today. God wants us to be real, not just religious. Religion says, don't disrupt, don't bother, don't be demanding, don't believe too big, don't get your hopes up, don't, don't, don't. But a faith that's real, a faith that's real says just believe. And so my first encouragement for you and I today is to believe. Do not be afraid to believe God for the impossible, to place a new faith demand on him. And don't be afraid of what other people will say or think about you in the meantime. Amen? Now back to our text. In John, right here in chapter 2, Jesus responds to his mother's faith demand. And he tells his disciples to grab the six empty stone water jars that were sitting there, whose purpose was to carry out what we call, or what the Bible calls, Jewish rites of purification. And this is really important, but it's easy to miss. So let's talk about it. Jewish ceremonial cleansing or purification rites were a huge part of how life was lived and carried out under the old covenant that God had made with the Jewish people. Oftentimes, they would cleanse the body or the hands with water to make clean what had touched something that was deemed unclean. So if they'd come in contact with a dead body or they touched something that the law deemed unclean, they would have to perform this cleansing rite. And this was called Netalat Yarahim, which literally means hand washing. And oftentimes this hand washing was done with a blessing. They would do this in the morning before lifting up their hands in praise. They would do this in the afternoon before touching or eating bread. And here, and what is most likely the case, they would do this before a wedding feast where much food would obviously be touched by many people. And so they would perform this ceremony, this netalat yadayim, and they would say the words nasayad kodesh barak hashem which comes directly from Psalm 134, verse 2, which says, lift up your hands to the holy place and bless the Lord. And so it's against this backdrop that Jesus sees these six empty stone water jars just sitting there. And they were empty because the people had obviously used the water to perform this cleansing rite, to wash their hands. And the scriptures also make note of the fact that here there were six jars. Now, in Jewish thinking, numbers are always important. Whereas the number seven represents perfection or even fullness, the number six, according to Jewish thought, represents imperfection or the lack of fullness. It's actually symbolic of man or the works of man and even the flesh. And so Jesus sees these six empty jars, the works of man embodied by these containers, jars that were used to perform ritual rites. But where the works of man brought about imperfection and emptiness, Jesus sees a new opportunity to bring about completion and fullness. Yes, I believe where people saw old and empty things, Jesus saw the opportunity to bring the new, to perform his first major miracle that would ultimately foreshadow what he was later gonna do in performing his greatest miracle. And that's to cleanse not just the outside of a person, not just their hands, but to actually cleanse the inside of a person, to fill them with the fullness of something new, to give them the good wine. Say it with me the good wine. 
I love the dramatic and narrative tension here, the setup and the anticipation. There's this contrast happening between the old covenant and the new covenant that Jesus has come to fulfill and inaugurate and announce. And the backdrop is this wedding feast, this celebration. Jesus, the Messiah, just waiting in the wings. Humanity doing what humanity does best, partying, singing, dancing. And yet the wine runs out. The gig is up. So what do you do? Mary knew what to do because Mary had been pregnant with the answer. Once upon a time, her own life was bursting with the fullness of this promise of what God through the angel had spoken to her about her son, that he was the son of God, the king of Israel, the king of the world. And because of this, she intimately knew the miracle maker. She knew what Jesus was capable of. And so she places a faith demand on him, on Jesus. And Jesus, seeing their true emptiness, seeing their lack, is about to bring about fullness in an unexpected way. Verse 7, Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some of it out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it, and when the master of the feast tasted the water that had now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him in verse 10, everyone serves the good wine first, And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. Say it with me, the good wine. Okay, so here we come to the payoff. Jesus turns the water into wine, right? We've all heard this story. But it's not just any wine. The scriptures actually tell us it's the good wine. Or at least that's what the feast master thinks. Now, I'm not sure everybody stands in the room regarding drinking wine. But I can honestly tell you that I've had some bad wine. I've had some okay wine. And then on a few rare occasions, I've had some good wine. And you know what? There's a huge difference between just okay, ordinary wine and good wine. Anybody know what I'm talking about? No, I'm not talking about that two buck Chuck. I'm talking about that $100 Camus. Okay. Now I don't profess to be some kind of wine expert or connoisseur, but I can tell you this about good wine. It's usually very costly. Did you catch that? It's usually very costly. And I believe Jesus is trying to make a point here. Jesus turns the water into wine, not just okay wine, but noticeably good wine, costly wine. But shockingly, and unlike most costly wines, this wine is not old. It's not vintage. It's brand spanking new. And it's so good that the feast master, some translations say the head waiter, or you could call him the sommelier, he notices And he's floored by how good it is. And he calls over to the bridegroom and he says in verse 10, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk it, then the poor wine. But you've kept the good wine until now. All right. The feast master obviously thinks the bridegroom is responsible. And you know what? He's not wrong. He's just mistaken because the real bridegroom is responsible. And he's come to do a new thing. Jesus pours new and good wine into empty old vessels. And in doing so, I believe he gives them a new purpose. So much so that when people taste of it, it's startling. It's shocking. It's surprising. Do you catch the parallel here? Do you see what he's doing here? Paul would actually later write about it in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7, when he said, But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Church, God wants to do surpassingly powerful things in you. That's our next key point today. God wants to do amazing things in and through your life. 
Because Jesus has come to do a new thing. He's come to do the unexpected. And he wants to take old, empty vessels like you and me. And he wants to fill us with new wine. With, say it with me, the good wine. With his Holy Spirit. With this all-surpassing power that belongs only to God. And he wants to give us a new purpose. He wants to provide a new meaning and a new context for our lives. So what was once old and religious and discarded, just lying in a corner, overlooked, becomes the breeding ground for the miraculous. It becomes a new means for many miracles. And it is precisely for this reason that I believe Jesus does what he does best. He changes and transforms things. He makes all things new. Revelation chapter 21 verse 5 says it this way, and he who was seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. Yes, Jesus, the miracle maker, he's making all things new. Not just some things. It doesn't say that. It says all things. And that is the invitation, my friends, to drink in the newness and the fullness of life that comes from him, that touches all things. That's what Jesus wants to do. He wants to touch every part of your life. And even more so, I believe what Jesus makes new, others in your life will call good. As a result, they too will taste and see that the Lord is good. Just like the feast master did, they will taste and see that the new wine is good. People all around us, church, will taste and see that these new and good things in our life are good. And as a result, they'll glorify God. I believe that's the point. Listen to verse 11. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana and Galilee, and he manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. God always manifests his glory through good things. That's our next key point today. Remember the twofold purpose of miracles? It's to open people up to believe in Jesus and to help them experience the fullness. That's right. The fullness of life that flows from the Father. That's what Jesus is doing here. He's manifesting his glory by inviting his disciples, by inviting us, that's right, ordinary people like you and me, to experience a new fullness that comes from him. Because the truth is, eventually the old wine always runs out, doesn't it? Maybe you're here today and your old wine has completely run out. What do I mean? I mean your old routine, your old way of life, of doing things according to your own flesh and your own works. Maybe you've tried religion and found it lacking and empty. And by the works of your flesh, maybe you've tried to cleanse your outer life. Maybe you've even tried church after church and you're still not satisfied. Can I invite you to have a taste of the good wine today? Can I invite you to come and experience the new things of God? In just a few moments, we're going to go back into worship and we're going to pray together to do just that. Maybe you're here today and what was once fresh and new has become old and stale. Maybe bitterness crept into your heart through hurt or through pain. And maybe as a result, it spoiled things for you like a fly in your soup. I would also like to invite you today to drink in the new. Maybe what worked for you then was for that season then. But today, it's a new season and God wants to do a new thing in and through your life. Would you be willing to let him do it? Church, I believe that God has called us to be a courageous people that know how to marvel at the feet of the miracle maker, that know how to worship him in faith. Before we do that, if you're here today and you've never experienced the good wine, the new wine, this outpouring of his Holy Spirit, we're going to invite you to pray with us as the worship team comes. And the prayer is simply this, Jesus, miracle maker, fill me with your Holy Spirit. Fill me with the good wine. Come and do a new thing in me and through me that others would taste and see that you are good. 
because you desire nothing but good things for me. Jesus, I believe in you. I believe you died on the cross for me and that you were raised to life for me. And I want you to come now and make all things new for me. Come and do many miracles. Amen. Thank you for listening today. To find out more information about our church, including ways you can give, please visit us at courageouschurch.com.